Okay, let me pray and we'll talk about the charismatic movement, prophecy, and healings today. Great, great Resurrection Sunday, right? We will indeed focus on that in the, in the sermon, but um, continuing on with our biblical doctrine this morning, uh, this is where we're scheduled to be. So, Lord, we pray to you this morning to give us insight, to help us to understand what the scripture meant, what, what it means uh, what it meant when it was written and what it means to us today, which is the same meaning, Lord. Help us to understand that. Help us to know that they in, were inspired by you to write it. And now we have to look back and properly interpret that. If we do that, Lord, so many problems clear up in our minds for today. Help us to be very discerning, to know where false teaching can lead, to know where uh, over... Um, Emphasis on certain gifts can lead. Give us wisdom. Give us a love for those who are sometimes trapped in these different uh, groups and denominations. Pray that you would move our hearts today to love your word all the more. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, uh, we didn't finish the charismatic movement. There's three waves, and they all came about in the 1900s. So there's this big debate, right? Do we have the gifts today or not? And I, I showed you last week tongues and what I thought uh, would be a good argument. If you guys don't have a handout, there's one going around. Who doesn't have one? All right. Pass those around, guys. If it, and Brandon, can you make sure anybody that comes in late gets one? We're just continuing with this three waves. I'm going to go back and pick up the first one. What we know today as tongues and prophecy, what, what we hear, tongues, prophecy, and healing, what we hear of today did not start until the 1900s, 1901 to be exact. Before that, there were only a few groups that claimed to do these things. One, everyone would call heretics. The Montanists. The, the, uh, the Quaker movement at Oxford, where people ran around naked on campus saying that they had prophecies. Uh, various heretical groups would claim to have prophetic words from God. Therefore, you should listen to them. And then the other group is Roman Catholics, particularly uh, from Augustine to the Reformation, said that the miracles they had seen, statues weeping, blood coming out of stones, uh, all of these pieces of the cross. There's enough pieces of the cross in the world to make up a hundred crosses, I think. You know, the Notre Dame just burned inside and they said they had the real uh, crown of thorns that Jesus had. It's lasted all these years. And I saw where a group of Baptists online were even debating whether that was real or not. You know, it shows you how much the Protestant Reformation is drifting into the background. They were thinking, well, it's possible, I guess, you know, maybe. And people go on pilgrimage there every year to look at that. So the Catholics claimed that they were having uh, prophetic word and miracles and healings. But it was always, I think, made up to justify their unbiblical doctrines. So we're going back now to the phase one of the charismatic movement. It starts in 1901. I talked about this guy, Charles Fox Parham, last week in Topeka, Kansas. He was doing these tent revivals. Suddenly, for whatever reason, probably just to get more attention, one of his female assistants starts babbling, and it's a speaking in tongues. The Lord will give us the power of speech, he said, talk to people of various nations. So he understood that it was a language, and they all thought it was a foreign language. No one knew and suddenly learned by the Holy Spirit's power. So he starts sending out missionaries. And uh, by the way, I said this guy was arrested in San Antonio. Uh, he had a 
unnatural decency with a man. And uh, they, they finally dropped the charges, but that ruined his ministry. So he passed it on to one of his assistants. But he started the charismatic movement, uh, the Pentecostal movement specifically. And even this book written by charismatics says it was an embarrassment to say speaking in tongues of foreign languages. Uh, it was really an embarrassment because they sent off people around the world. They couldn't speak in those languages. They came back a failure as a missionary. So here was the first tongue speaker. They asked her to write some of her tongues down that she was getting. And she said that this was Chinese. No Chinese people could read it at the time or since. It's just kind of scribble. So there's three waves of that movement. The first is that the Pentecostalism from 1901 to 1909. You had a lot of uh, Methodists coming out and forming this new group called Pentecostalism. And their main focus was tongues, prophecy, and healing. That was what they focused on. That's what made them different. It was not seen or heard really before this. It wasn't even common. You can see the LA Times said it was a weird babble of tongues, new set of uh, fanatics is breaking loose, uh, wild scene last night at Azusa Street. So this scene goes to LA, and, and even people in LA, which aren't known for their great piety, although Frank can attest there are true believers there, but even in 1901, 1906, uh, this is not a place where there's everybody's a believer. They even question this because it's something new. It hasn't been around. And they even question it. So that's the first wave. And it's only Pentecostals that do those things, supposedly, for about 60 years. We don't see anybody else outside of the Pentecostal movement really uh, claiming to do that until the second wave hits. And that's the charismatic renewal. That's the charismatic renewal. So... The, the first wave is this uh, Azusa Street revival. It goes to L.A., and, and there's a man named Seymour who, who takes it there, and that's where you get Azusa Street and Azusa College and all of that today. But that has an effect, especially in California, L.A., and in the northern part there in Van Nuys, uh, at St. Mark's Episcopal Church. We have this Reverend Dennis Bennett suddenly baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he began to pray in tongues. The first person officially outside of the Pentecostal movement claiming to speak in tongues. Then suddenly the Lutherans start doing it in the 60s. They, they took a poll in 79 and they said that 20% of Lutherans were moving away from traditional Lutherism into these new charismatic Lutheran denominations. The Presbyterians catch on in 66. They form a, a Presbyterian charismatic communion. Methodists in the 60s and 70s. So you don't have to leave it and go into the to Pentecostal movement, you can just be a prophetic tongue, tongue speaker in the Methodist. You have Oral Roberts. Everybody's familiar with him. He was big on the TV stations. Oral Roberts University, big charismatic figure. And then the Baptists. So what, what's happening here is it's jumping uh, out of the Pentecostal movement into these mainline denominations. Many of them were already trending away from the Bible anyway. And they, they just think, hey, this is a new life-giving force you know a new spirit that comes into the church suddenly we're getting crowds again suddenly people are coming to church suddenly people are getting really excited this is great let's all give it a try and so the baptists uh, a name you might recognize is john osteen in 1958 he was a pastor of a church in houston that's joel osteen's father and uh, he starts doing this charismatic stuff and so the church comes and says you're preaching heresy 
These things haven't happened. You're emphasizing them now. We don't even know what you're doing. You're telling us prophecies that aren't even coming true. You're speaking in Babel. That's heresy. And he said, well, I'll just leave, start my own church called Lakewood Baptist Church. Today known as just Lakewood Church by his son, uh, pastored by his son, Joel Osteen, today. Pat Robertson comes out of the Baptist movement, says he can do these things too. He starts CBN in 1960. So you can turn on Pat Robertson. Last time I turned it on years ago, he was saying that I, I know there's somebody out there with a knee problem. And I know it's being healed right now. And I thought, I've got a knee problem. <laughs> Roman Catholicism even uh, jumped in on this in 1966. Uh, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal is now in 230 countries in the world with over 160 million members. So it was kind of a, a meshing of Pentecostalism and, and Catholic Charismatics. So all these mainline groups are getting on board with these things. Never happened before 1960. Sometimes when a Baptist will say to me, yeah, you're speaking in tongues, you know, we believe in that. And I said, well, what did Baptists believe before 1960? Crickets. Because nobody really knows about the history of this stuff. You know, you just assume if you believe in it, people assume it's been around the whole time throughout church history. So who's left now? Who, who's not included in these? Just your general evangelical. The gospel preaching, Bible churches, evangelistic uh, Baptist churches, maybe Southern Baptists at this point. I grew up going to Southern Baptist Church and they didn't talk about this ever. And my whole town, even the Methodists and Presbyterians weren't involved in my little town, it was only the, the full gospel, four square church. But that changes in the 80s. 1980s to the present, we've seen the third wave. And this is the Signs and Wonders movement. And that's the name they gave it, Signs and Wonders. So you have the Pentecostals. But they have a lot of uh, really big errors, including you got saved and later baptized in the Spirit. And you showed that by speaking in tongues. And, and the... The second wave, they didn't care too much about that. They, they, they adopted it. But the third wave said, no, we like the idea of tongues and prophecy and healings, but we don't want to be identified with the mainline denominations and Roman Catholics. And we don't want to be identified with Pentecostals. So this guy, C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, also in L.A. So all this stuff's brewing in L.A. for the last century. Uh, in 1983, he starts the School of World Mission. And he starts a series of classes at Fuller, which at one point was a conservative school. Today they deny inerrancy. But he starts this movement, and, and he just starts a class. I mean, what better way to get it popular than have future pastors trained up on how to do it? And so he invites a guy in from the Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California, named John Wimber. And he tells John Wimber, come and teach us how to do prophecy, tongues, and healing. And they have a class there. I don't know if it was required, but a lot of people took it. That started this third wave. They denied that baptism of the Spirit was a second work. That's good. So they denied that false teaching. But by the 1990s, the Pentecostal style of worship had entered into many mainstream evangelical churches with services featuring contemporary music, raising of hands, and prayer for the sick. These are things that they listed as proving that the movement had taken off. As of 2000, Pentecostals and everybody who calls himself a charismatic, 530 million people worldwide. If you go to other countries, this thing is spreading like crazy. The Russian missionaries that we speak to, like at Shepherd's Conference, they're very frustrated. They stop exporting y'all's junk, right? Pros- <laughs> 
prosperity. See, first the charismatic movement rolls in, then the prosperity gospel comes in on top of it at a later point, and they're much more accepting of it. And in South America, I mean, it's anytime, anywhere there's poor, depressed, oppressed people, uh, they're going to catch on to some of this, and then the prosperity gospel is going to come in, and it, it's frustrating for a true gospel preacher in these countries. They called it the third wave. This is where we get the three waves from. See, Peter Wagner writes a book called The Third Wave of the Holy Spirit. In other words, let's grab everybody else who's not already in this thing and try to get them going. And so this brings in a lot of folks. Uh, John Wimber wrote a book, Riding the Third Wave. So you got the two main guys here. Uh, Wimber just did the introduction, but you can kind of see here uh, th- they're emphasizing this third wave. What comes after the renewal? Encountering the power of signs and wonders. Now that leads us to the year 2000, where we get the apostolic reformation the new apostolic reformation because what's left we got prophets again we got tongue speakers we got healings what's left frank there's only one group that we haven't taken care of right we got to get the apostles back now and this is where it leads i mean if if you say things like well it never says in the bible that they ceased that tongues would stop that's a lot of people say today right i can't say it doesn't exist because it never said it would stop well never said apostles would stop either well, that's going too far. Why? You know, they said, why? If we can say tongues exist, then, then why not uh, apostles? And so here we have the New Apostolic Reformation, which is kind of a branch off the third wave. And uh, C. Peter Wagner said that it was a movement. He helped start it in 2000. So this guy's behind a lot. He says it's a movement within Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And they're going to reclaim the lost offices of apostle and prophets. And their focus is on dominionism, not just speaking in tongues and prophesying, but it's time to move this thing out and take over cities and take over parts of government and make sure that, that you know, they would say that Christ's dominion and his kingdom is upon the earth. See, kingdom theology really plays a big part of this. What you believe about the kingdom. They say the kingdom is now, and not only is it now, but we're going to prove it by doing these things. We're going to take over these seven branches of influence in the world called the seven mountains, sometimes it's called the seven pillars, seven spheres. And they said, we're going to take over the economy or, or influence it with this uh, new apostolic reformation. Government, family, so what is that, three? Religion, media, education, and the arts. So even when um, oh, Texas governor, what was his name a few years ago? Rick Perry, conservative. He's running for re-election. These guys, some of these guys go and meet with them. They come up with an agreement that if he gets reelected, you know, they're going to have spiritual dominion over the state with him. You can look that up, Rick Perry and the New Apostolic Reformation. Very interesting. And so we get a sort of a re-emphasis because by 2000, the charismatic third wave is going, but it's not catching fire like we know it today. And here's C. Peter Wagner. He helps the third wave get going. And he pushes it further with the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. And these guys are the worst of the worst. I mean, they're into prosperity gospel. Anything that takes people's money and convinces them that God is working. So we've got this guy. Who's that guy there? Kenneth Copeland. He's been on TVN for a long time, right, Gary? How long has he been on TVN? Gary will know. (laughs) How long, Gary? He looks young with that hair color, doesn't he? But he's... He's getting up there. He just got a, uh, what was it, three, 
Three million dollar jet. Three million. Yeah. He's. Yeah, he's had lots of cosmetic changes. This guy here is Joseph Prince. He's from Singapore. So just an example of how it spread around the world. His books will be in bookstores. You can go to uh, Barnes and Nobles. You'll see both these guys. You know, uh, you probably won't find C. Peter Wagner, but you'll find Joseph Prince. And uh, he's known to be as being a, a grace-filled guy. He'll just talk about grace. And it sounds sort of biblical, but then you understand what he's really saying and get into his other stuff. And he's part of this, officially part of this new apostolic reformation. Here we have Mike Bickle here, uh, the guy on my left facing the screen. Mike Bickle is the prophet at IHOP, International House of Not Pancakes, but Prayer in Kansas City. There's two main guys there. And uh, this is the, the main prophet, probably the most well-known prophet. Um, even uh, John Piper and some other people uh, sort of point to this guy as being the prophet of the age. And he even said, I, I don't have the quote, but I heard it at Strange Fire Conference. Mike Bickle said uh, he's only right about 68% of the time in his prophecies. And that's pretty good. Um, and so uh, you have other guys like Francis Chan here on the right who's now sort of moving into that environment with these guys and starting to associate with them more. So just an example of a well-known guy who's written some books we've probably heard of. Maybe you own some Francis Chan stuff. Uh, He went to Masters back in the day. You won't find him listed on their recommended pastors anymore. But recently, in the last couple of years, he's been associating with these prosperity guys and and going to these conferences. And it's just a, a way of showing you, look, people are moving out of traditional conservative evangelicalism and, and going into these environments. So the, the guy on the left, um, when he says his prophecy is only right 60-something percent of the time, like what sort of things is he prophesying about? Certain things are going to happen next year. There's going to be a, a, a great change, upheaval in the government. Uh, there will be uh, a huge earthquake that will hit the West Coast. It doesn't happen. There will be a major hurricane that hits, you know, and, and certain you know, it happens in the month he suggested. So there's one for him. But then he missed the earthquake, right? <laughs> or, you know, uh, there's going to be a great outpouring of the Spirit in New York City. And, you know, 10 years later, it's less believers than, than there was before. So things like that. Usually kind of general, kind of like John Hagee's blood moons. If you really get into the book, you, he just says, well, something big is going to happen during the blood moons. Then after the fact, he can point and say, well, you know, this happened and that happened around the world. Stuff like that. Uh, here's Todd White uh, on the right. He's he's famous. He goes out and uh, he goes to the the streets and places in s- South um, California, and he he checks people's leg length. And then as he's talking to them, he checks their leg length, kind of like if you've been to a chiropractor, he checks your leg length, your pelvis is off. He'll say, "Look, you were born with a shortened leg. Watch this. I'm going to heal it." And as he's talking to the guy, he's he's maneuvering the feet, and he says, "Look, they're even." It's mira- It's a miracle. And they'll get up. Oh, yeah, I think my back feels better, you know. And uh, he, he does other crazy things. Uh, he, he's, he's the popular guy now. So he's coming on shows with, with uh, Copeland over there to, to raise up his stature in the, in the movement. He's, a, he's definitely, uh, he, he dresses wild. He acts wild. Uh, again, here's Francis Chan hugging this guy in a, a recent uh, conference in Atlanta a few months back called the Send Conference. It was a huge conference. I think there was 10,000 people there. And the, as apostles, they officially sent out 10,000 people around the world, they said. And, and you've got guys like Francis Cham, you know, moving in, giving this guy a hug. He said he was 
Uh, Francis Chan said that uh, Todd White was a holy man of God. Now this guy's the worst of the worst. This is Todd Bentley, another Todd. And he will kick people, not just in the stomach, he'll kick them in the head. He'll kick old ladies in the head and knock the demons out of them. And he also got a divorce unbiblically and remarried someone who got a divorce just to marry him. And he stepped down and stepped back up. And it, he, he's, um, he was just in East Texas though, last year, East Texas, uh, around Tyler area, doing a big revival. And then this is probably the most popular guy today in the middle top. That's uh, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in Redding, California. And they have a Bethel school of, I don't know what they call it, but lots of people go there and get trained, and it's a cult. Uh, his teaching has influenced the music group there, of course, and they've become popular. Jesus culture is very popular to teenagers and college students. And then their sort of their adult worship team, Bethel Music, has begun to put out a lot of uh, music as well. So the theology influences uh, the, the musicians, and now they're being played these days on K-Love and different radio stations in our area. So here's kind of a, a book called The Three Waves, and uh, or it's called Pentecostalism, but it shows you how all these different groups all start mixing together. You've got Catholics and Protestants coming together on that second wave. And then you have the third wave, which are the Neo, the new Pentecostals. And uh, they're starting apostolic networks. And uh, you've got Seventh-day Adventists coming into Pentecostalism, Methodists, the Divine Healing Movement. All these different groups are, are mixing together. Questions about tongues or the three waves of charismatic movement before we continue with prophecy? It, se- it seems to me that the biggest thing that all of, all of them have in, from Roman Catholicism all the way down uh, is that they have this desire for money and, and it's all about money it's, mm-hmm. and really it's kind of like a, a control issue as well Well, yep that's true you know, we, fame and we fortune want your money, but we also want to tell you exactly you, know, you can't study outside of Outside of this church, you can't go to a private study group, you know, like mm-hmm. in a, another church or something. Don't do that. You it's know, cultish. Doing things like yeah. That. It's cultish. Just, it, am, I, am I off on that? Or? No, I think it, especially the, these last guys we looked at, very cultish. Very cultish. Yeah, exactly. That's what I Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not only that, but it influences everyone. I mean, the average evangelical Christian 50 years ago, 100 years ago, if you ask them, do people speak in tongues? They would have said no. Now, the majority of them will say, I don't know, probably. I haven't seen it. I haven't done it, but yeah, probably. Somebody has done it out there somewhere. And so we have this sort of cautious uh, but but careful idea. And uh, yeah, we, we just got to be discerning as Christians. What did we talk about last week for us with tongues? The purpose of tongues was for? edification and a sign for unbelievers and so this idea that you could use it for fame and fortune the apostles were the most miraculous workers after jesus how rich were they i mean they were famous when they came to a town and did a few healings but it was to get attention so that uh not attention in the wrong way but a godly attention god provided that so that they could uh, proclaim the gospel because everybody's coming large crowds now this is a miracle of God. Let's listen to what these godly men have to say. 
bam, gospel presentation. Let's talk about prophecy. I've already gone through prophets about a month ago, a year ago, and, and then a month ago we discussed the office of prophets. You remember apostles, prophets, evangelists, elders. But I want to go back to it briefly before we get to healings. I didn't define it well last time, but if you look at all the passages in Old and New Testament, it comes out to be, the definition does, a, the New Testament gift of prophecy was the completely accurate and fully, hang on, I'm not drawing, there we go, fully authoritative declaration of divine revelation from God to the church. This was new revelation from God, which is reported to others, either spoken or written. So that's pretty much what the Bible teaches us. There is one part of that, though, that's, that's got to be refuted today for prophecy to continue today. What is that one part? The completely accurate part. And so if you read, you know, I've got Grudem's systematic theology. If you read that, he believes these things are still going on. He's, he's charismatic in that regard. That's why we use this white book here, and I'm thankful that it came out, because Grudem's good on other things, but not so much on this. He says that a prophet today doesn't have to be accurate. From the New Testament time until now, it's okay if they get it sort of garbled in their head before they proclaim it and mess it up. But he agrees in the Old Testament they had to be accurate. The problem is we see no change. We see no change from the Old to the New in regards to what God expects. So prophecy is also described in very related gifts in this list. The only place you find these terms are in 1 Corinthians 12, the word of wisdom. The wi- this, is, this is God's wisdom here. So it's called the word of wisdom. And the key here is this idea of the word. The word of knowledge, knowledge from God. Generally, these are prophecies. And then the gift of distinguishing of spirits. This is kind of a debated one, but it's not the discernment gift. It's not the idea to discern right from wrong, false teachers from from true teachers. It's to be able to discern spiritual matters in such a way that God is telling you directly what's happening. Like when the apostles knew that person's demon-possessed as soon as they walk up to them. We might observe somebody for a long time and still not quite know if they're truly demon-possessed. So the three tests that we've mentioned before, doctrinal orthodoxy. If a person has a prophecy, then they're a prophet. That's what the Bible says. And they need to be correct in their doctrine. No matter what they say, it has to line up with Scripture. So what happens in Deuteronomy 13? I'll just summarize this passage. You say something as a prophet that's points to false gods, false religion, unbiblical teaching, what happens? They shall be put to death. Now today in the church, we don't, we don't do this. We don't stone people, but there's, there's a type of discipline we have in the church called church discipline, excommunication. They were to be put out of the camp and stoned to death in the Old Testament because they were living together. You get a false prophet in there saying, go after the pagans. Even if the guy turns out right in his predictions, Go after the pagans, the whole nation's going to turn away. God says, take them out. That's the death penalty. New Testament, you put them out of the church and say they're an unbeliever. But the, the, the teachings there in the old, Jesus doesn't have to restate it if it's in the old when it comes to what's going on with prophecy. So the key passage is Deuteronomy 13 there. And uh, you've got to purge the evil from among you. So the, the question here that they had is, 
we're scared of this guy. He claims to talk for God. And God says, don't fear him if he does this, if he speaks in false doctrine. The second one that has to be ha- occur with the prophet is moral integrity. No matter what they teach, if it's, even if it's orthodox, and their predictions come true, they have to be morally righteous before God. Not perfect, but, but righteous. Jeremiah says, also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, living a sinful life. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom, her inhabitants like Gomorrah. The Lord of hosts says, do not listen to them. So Benny Hinn, you know, found with a woman in a hotel that's not his wife, and then a few months later divorces his wife and then marries her, and, and then keeps on prophesying like there's no problem. That's an that's a issue of moral integrity. Christians, the average Christian can sin, mess up, and get disciplined by God in the church and, and be restored. But it's like a pasture here. You can't let this guy do this and then go on like nothing happened. Because God says that won't happen if it's a true prophet. This isn't just an average guy showing up. Jeremiah is not just some guy off the street. God is speaking through him. And then you've got these other prophets saying, no, Jeremiah is a liar. Well, they're living in adultery and walking in sin. And you, that picture I showed you with all those people, that happened with almost every one of them. They've been caught in various ways. Uh, you have Mark Driscoll recently joined the New Apostolic Reformation. If you all familiar with Mark Driscoll? He was popular a few years ago in, amongst Calvinists. and he, he lost his position. He got fired. His whole network folded. He got fired from the Gospel Coalition, the Acts 29 network, and then his own church for being uh, abusive to his church and uh, falsifying, stealing books, plagiarism, buying his own books just so he could be on the New York Times bestseller list. That's a moral integrity problem. But now he goes to the New Apostolic Reformation and they don't care. They, they, they give him a new church plant in, in Phoenix. Here you go. We'll give you some money. Also, another guy I didn't put up, I, I forgot, uh, Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name there, but he's, he's kind of the center for bringing these conferences on in South Lake. Yeah, so he brings a lot of these guys in and puts on conferences with the New Apostolic Reformation. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Well, how do you know if they're false? Well, he says, first of all, you, you can't always see them coming because they look like sheep. But inwardly, in their hearts, in their life, they're, they're sinful, completely uh, seeking people to devour. Uh, I think Paul and Jude speak of captivating weak women and, and trying to bring them in uh, for money and fame and fortune and abusing them. So then you will know them by their fruits. See, what happens is these guys get called out, like Justin Peters and, and people, they will call out these false prophets. And people say, well, no one's perfect, right? We all sin. We might all sin, but we're not up there saying, God is speaking through me and telling you to do this. Send me $500 today, Forrest, and you will be a wealthy man. Third test is predictive accuracy. This is where they all fail. You may say in your heart, how will we know? which the Lord has not spoken, the word which the Lord has not spoken. So how do we know the difference between a false and a true prophet? And God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, which all prophecy is in the name of the Lord, if you're saying that God told me to do this, 
If the thing does not come about or come true, what is the thing which the Lord has not spoken? Or that's the thing that the Lord has not spoken. If it doesn't come true, if it does not come true, God didn't say it. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Who cares? R.C. Sproul used to tell people, they'd come up to him after a conference. I got a, I got a word of God for you today. They would tell him, you know, your daughter's going to marry this guy next year, yada, yada. And he'd say, how do you know that feeling you're having is just not bad pizza you ate last night? <laughs> like, how do I know to trust you? There's nothing in God's word to back that up. And, you know, it a, doesn't come true. And if you get online, you can look up John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and they, they, they try to deal with this idea. What happens when it doesn't come true or when somebody claims to prophesy over you? And basically, if I recall correctly, Piper just says, you know, if it sounds important, I go with it. And if it doesn't, I kind of just wait to see what happens. The word of God is the word of God. You don't, you don't get to be that subjective. If it truly is the word, you better do it. And that's where people say, hey, if it's the word of God, add it to the Bible. Well, it's just for you, Gary. We're not going to add it to the Bible. Well, hey, it's the word of God, though. Because I believe that the canon has been closed. The apostles wrote scripture. It's done. And we're not to be adding other words from God. And I think, does it exist today? You know, the Bible never says it stopped. Well, let's interpret the Bible. Here it is. Ephesians 2.20. God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cornerstone gets laid, that's Christ. The apostles start building the foundation with their teaching and spreading of the gospel. The prophets come along with them. The apostles can't be in every place, everywhere. So God raises up prophets who speak for him. Remember, the New Testament's not done. There's no letters in the New Testament. You're a Christian church in Corinth. How do you know what to do? You weren't there when Jesus taught. You don't remember. Last time Paul came through was years ago. What, what do we do about this and that and these pagan stuff? Do we still live like this? And can we get married? And There's prophets in the churches at that time. But... How many times do you lay a foundation? Where's Carl? He's not here. Our bu- we don't have to be a builder to know, right? One time, the foundation's laid. <laughs> yes, but foundations of the building back then were made of rock. And, uh, but they, they, they didn't fall apart. You just cleared the building off if it fell down and built on that same foundation. In fact, the Catholics came in and built on all the pagan temple foundations that they used to have in cities. Um, the foundations were solid. They were built on rocky, strong places. And, and Paul says, here's the image I want you to see. We've come in and we're laying this foundation. And now, after them, the house is being built, the house of God. The household of God is what? What is this? The church. So where's the verse that says they're done? Right here. Now, Grudem deals with this in his systematic theology. He says, hey, if that's the way it goes, then I agree. But he says, hold on a second, these guys should go first. These are Old Testament prophets. And they built a foundation, and then the apostles came along. The problem is, in Greek especially, what comes first usually comes first in time. And we see the same exact listing that we looked at a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4.11. It's one of the verses I had my, my teen class memorize a few weeks ago. Do you remember it, Haley? What comes first in the list of gifts in Ephesians 4.11? What comes first? Apostles. What comes second? 
prophets. Same list, same order. And no one argues in Ephesians 4.11 that that order doesn't symbolize something. And so these are coming in uh, order. You have apostles, you have prophets. In Ephesians 4.11, you have evangelists, which then go out. And then later, elders, pastors are coming up in the church as an office. Now let's talk real quick about what prophecy is not. I've had a lot of discussions with folks over this. This is a big thing these days. Probably the most common question I get. No one seems to have a problem when they visit here about election, well, occasionally, but God's sovereignty, even end times. Uh, they realize I think Christians can disagree, but what they have a problem with is this idea that the gifts have ceased. And it often comes out like this. I don't want to believe that. I can't believe that because I had this feeling last week. I had this feeling that my sister needed me to bring her a cup of coffee from Starbucks. <laughs> so I went. This is an exact story I heard. So I went and I got her a cup of coffee and I took it there. And you know what she told me? About an hour ago, when I was thinking the same thing, she was saying to herself, I really wish I had a cup of coffee from Starbucks. And the person tells me, that's a prophetic inspiration from God. And therefore, I can't say that prophecy has ceased. That's what we call a categorical error, okay? It's a categorical error. You have a category of prophecy. That's one thing. We define what that is, okay? And then you have a different one called whatever. (laughs) What do you want to call it? Conscience. Conscience, uh, uh, Maybe just... uh, what do people call it when they're just moved to do something? Intuition, inspiration. And then they'll, if they're really up on their Bible, they'll say, look, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts to, to have us do things. And I would say, yeah. Charles Spurgeon would often say, well, the Spirit is moving me to do such and such and, and to tell you to stop sinning. And, and you right there in the service, you look like a sinner. And people say, well, there you go. Spurgeon was pro- prophet, right? No. No, he, he, the, the Spirit was convicting his heart to do something, and he was going with what he thought. It's kind of like when you sit next to that person that's an unbeliever, and you feel like, and I really should talk to them about Christ. But I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> well, God wants me to, you know? And you feel this thing in your heart t- twisting you around, right? Is that a prophecy? No, that's just the Spirit moving you to do what you should do. That's not prophecy. The fact that you had that, even let's assume that your sister was thinking of a coffee and you were thinking of a coffee. What we call that? Providence of God, right? She had a need. You thought you would help her out. It's no different than we get sick. Man, it would sure be nice if we could have dinner brought to us. Bam, somebody shows up at the door with dinner and helps us out. That, that's not prophecy. I, you know, the phrases didn't have prophecy when they did that. Did you get a prophecy? Did Laura get a prophecy to bring us some some chicken soup that day? And <laughs> the government? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's going to be the same with healing in a minute. We can't confuse the categories. Prophecy has a specific definition, and everything else is something else. It's kind of like tongues. Well, I had this experience, and I was saying something. What do you call that? I don't know. I don't have to diagnose whatever you had. What do you call that? I don't know. It's not tongues, because tongues is this in the Bible, and then there's everything else that is not in the Bible, and I don't know. Providence? providence, yeah. Providence of God. Providence of God, Holy Spirit moving, intuition, um, feelings, emotions, the heart. my heart moved me to do this. Those are not prophecies. God can move you in your heart to do something, 
But if you don't do it, it's not the same as you just heard a prophecy and didn't follow God's word. I often have to say to somebody, I think this is going to happen, but I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, right? Theology is about thinking in specific categories, right? Uh, I've had this happen. Uh, This is more of desire, but people will say, I don't believe in healing and I have cancer. My only hope is that God would would heal me, and I don't believe in that. We're going to come to that quickly. All right, um, all right, the gift of healings. I only mentioned one time, and it's in the plural. Uh, it doesn't sound right in English, so our translations don't put it in the plural. Always, though, the question is, what does the Bible say? Well, my friend was healed by Benny Hinn. Okay, let's start with what the Bible says, okay? Satan can do different things. Satan can produce signs and wonders. Did the Egyptian uh, magicians not do some miraculous signs? Let's start with what the Bible says. What was the gift of healing? It's only mentioned one time, and it's plural, gifts of healings. You look it up in your Bible, it says gift of healing. It's gifts, plural, of healing. So whatever it is, people don't even know. It's mentioned once. The example, though, is given multiple times in the Gospel and Acts. But it's very interesting. You never see Paul tell people or Peter tell people to go do that. Just like they don't say, go cast out demons. Now, you do see discussion on prophecy, and you do see discussion on tongues from 1 Corinthians. What you don't see is anybody saying, go heal this person. As if it's probably just the apostles and a few people outside of that group. Um, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Healings, number one. I'm going to give you six points pretty quick here. Number one, they were public and they occurred immediately. Benny Hinn does it publicly. Does it occur immediately? You go to Benny Hinn, you get healed, you go to the doctor the next day and get an x-ray. The spine's not going to be straight. People have done that. In fact, at all those things, the people in wheelchairs are hiding in the back trying to get up to the front and they won't select them to come up. Justin Peters talks about that. He went to all of these uh, revivals trying to get healed of his cerebral palsy. And they would never select him to come forward. And he was just, well, what's wrong with me, God? They won't take me. And uh, uh, who's the woman that's in a wheelchair? She just, John, Joni Erickson Tata talks about when she was younger. She would, they would push her wheelchair to these little revivals, hoping to be healed. And they would never select her to come up and be healed. Jesus and the apostles, they, they did it immediately, the leprosy left him. It was immediate, and he was cleansed. None of Jesus or the apostles' healings occurred over days, weeks, or months. Now, there's three times where Jesus delayed it by a few minutes, but it's never days, weeks, or months. You know, I went, I went and got healed by this healer in South America, and then two months later, my back pain went away. Second, the gift of healing was used in ordinary, unplanned situations. There was no, meet me here at this time, we're having healing. They would walk up. People would come, be healed. No plan, no announcement. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand. Fever left her. She got up and waited on him. Matthew 9, 20. A woman who had been suffering from hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and just touched the fringe of his cloak. He didn't say, who wants to come up front today, right? Come on up. You ushers, grab some people. Come on, we'll just hit him like this. This woman just touches him as he walks by, healed instantly. Matthew 9, 27, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him 
And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. We'll talk about faith in a minute. Healings were undeniable even, even to those who did not believe in the message that the healer spoke. Are y'all getting these if you're taking notes? Am I going too fast? So number two was, they were ordinary, unplanned situations. Number three, they were undeniable even to, we could say, Jesus' enemies, the apostles' adversaries, even admitted what happened. Look at Matthew 12, 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons. They knew it was true. See, it was so obvious, no one could object to it. Even those who hated Jesus and wanted to kill him, this man casts out demons. Now they attribute it to Satan, which was an unforgivable sin, but they at least admitted that it happened. No one could claim it didn't happen. When Lazarus got up out of the tomb, you can't say it didn't happen because you can see Lazarus walking around. Today, though, I can look at Benny Hinn and say, that, that guy didn't do anything. You know, these guys, these, he's, these Todd Bentley kicking the lady in the head just gave her a bad headache, you know, if it didn't break her neck. <laughs> didn't do anything. I, ca- I can clearly say that it didn't, uh, but yet here, the Pharisees couldn't even say that because it was obvious, in other words. And then here's the apostles in Acts 4.16. What shall we do with these men? The Sanhedrin says, what shall we do? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all. Everyone's seen it, and we cannot deny it. Your true gift of healing, you have a true healing gift. If you can heal somebody and even your enemies say they got healed. Number four, for previously untreatable diseases and sicknesses, that's what these healings were done. Healings were complete and irreversible. They were complete and they were irreversible. So really, the the idea here is that they were not treatable by any other means. Even today, some of these things could not be treatable. We don't have leprosy as much, but but people who get it, you know, it depends on what leprosy is. You have to... You'd had to have been at Frank's Bible study this week. They taught on leprosy, but it's probably not the same today as it was back then. Different, same name, different diseases. But these were things that no one could help. Twisted spines, broken leg, or not broken, twisted legs, bleeding that happened for 12 years from a woman, um, paralyzation, death. And they were complete healings and they were irreversible. Matthew 14, 36, And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. As many as touched it were cured. That's how quick it was. They just, they just touched it and they were cured. Jesus was healing people immediately from diseases that they had had for some time. Matthew 8, 2 through 3, And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately leprosy was cleansed. No one can help this guy. Lepers never got healed. Frank reminded us of that this week. Even though it was in Leviticus on what to do, I don't know that it ever had happened before Jesus. It just never did. And then suddenly, immediately. So when you go to your next healing revival, there are always tents out along the highway in the country especially. And there's plenty. there's, There's a church, a church right down here. It was packed the car lot this morning so 
So you shouldn't go there on Sunday, but if you ever end up in one of those and they're supposedly doing healing, look for these six things. Faith is not required compared to what modern charismatic faith healers claim. You do see people who had faith. You do see Jesus say, if you have faith, I'll make you clean. But it was not an absolute requirement. Today, if the, the person, the faith healer touches you, just his name tells you, right? Faith healer. If he touches you and you don't get healed, whose fault is it? It's your fault. Your knees, Frank, they still bother you because you don't have enough faith. Not my fault. Just give me the money and go on, you know? That wasn't required. The centurion servant in Matthew 8, the servant was healed. The centurion had faith, but it says nothing about the servant. Of the ten lepers, how many returned and had faith? One out of ten. He healed all ten. Nine of them did not have faith. They went back to their normal life. One came back and bowed down and professed faith. The widow's son, did he have faith? What happened to the widow's son? He's dead. He's dead. Have faith so you can be healed. Jairus' daughter, dead. Lazarus, dead. Not only can they not regenerate their hearts and believe because they're dead, they can't have faith, period. The lame man healed at the pool of Bethesda was unaware of who Jesus was. Who is this man? And Jesus healed him because he was, he was known by the city to be there. Last one here. Uh, healing seemed to have lessened throughout the time of the early church. But in the beginning of Acts, look, many signs and wonders were taking place. People just walking up, you know, they fall in the shadow of the apostle Peter and they're getting healed, right? Just, just bring me up on a cot and lay me in the shadow of Peter when he walks by, right? To such an extent that he even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any of them. The implication here is just his presence was enough to heal them. That's how much God was using uh, his God's power through these apostles. 30 years later, Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach, your frequent ailments. Probably Timothy had always had some kind of stomach, intestinal, not disease, but it sounds like a, he was born with a problem. And he had to drink some wine to make it calm down. Maybe all those diseases that people are born with today of the colon. Whatever it is, no healing. Paul could heal. What does he tell him? Drink some wine. Take some medicine. Take something to help your stomach feel better. And there's healers? Maybe. But they're probably becoming less and less. What does church history say about it? Well, what does church history say about tongues and prophecy? We looked at that last week. It didn't exist up until 1901. No orthodox. What's orthodox? People who teach true doctrine. No orthodox theologian. The only person who claims this, in other words, are heretical theologians. Our heretical sects uh, records the gift of healing throughout history. Of those healings mentioned, this is important here, there are unverifiable anecdotal stories, many of which are associated with providing evidence to canonize a saint into the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, we had healings, saint so-and-so. That's how they got canonized as a saint. That's all we need. Uh, two different questions about healing. The same as we just did with prophecy, but these are two different categories. Does the gift of healing still exist today versus does God still heal people today? Can't come to this church. I don't believe in the gift of healing. What's the gift, Frank? An, ab- an ability God gives somebody to do this 
through his power, but he works through them, right? What's God healing people? Yeah, could and, and it occurs naturally, providentially, in the natural flow of things. Going to the doctor, you have a disease, that I said, it's going to kill you, you, s- you live 15 more years. They said it was going to kill you in six months. Well, you know, we're too busy looking for the miraculous and not seeing God's providence working out there. That's one thing they'll, they'll twist a lot. Like uh, Michael Brown twists that all the time. He'll have a cessation stage where guys can shoot the poem and he holds safe in his And he'll twist it and say, well, if you don't believe the gift of healing exists, then you don't think that God can heal anybody. And he just does that all the time. That's a major distinction. And, and this is a category of confusion. People are saying the two are the same and they're not. God doesn't have to work through somebody, but if he does, that's a gift of healing. That's what we're saying doesn't exist anymore today because it was used as a sign to authenticate the message of the apostles in the early church. Now we look to the Bible to, to read about those signs, but God can still heal people directly. It's two different things. God doesn't have a gift of healing. He is the healer. He doesn't need anybody's help. He gave it for a specific purpose at a specific time. So that concludes prophecy and healing. Next week we move on to, uh, next time we talk about all the other gifts, which we've already covered in brief. So all the other gifts. We, we spent two weeks on three and then all the rest next week. Lord, we come to you thanking you for this study today. Time to study your word and, and consider what prophecy is, uh, what tongues are, what they were in biblical times, and how today what people claim, it doesn't match. It doesn't match your word. It doesn't match what people were doing in the early church. Help us to be discerning. Help us to reach out to our friends and family members caught up in these movements, movements that that lead away from Christ and focus on other things, that emphasize gifts over salvation. Help us to love them enough to to talk to them, to pass along a a resource, a book, a sermon, a a video. We want to see people saved out of these, some of these wicked movements like the NAR and the prosperity gospel. Lord, we look forward now to worshiping you in our service. In the name of our Lord, amen.